able to read through that. So, uh, but it is so full of rich uh, truth and encouragement uh, to us, and, and I hope that you have found that to be true as well. Uh, let me begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this together. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. Again, all that's been said and all that's been done so far, really in offering to you our thanksgiving, but also in preparing our hearts to, uh, to listen to your word. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through it. We know uh, that is how you communicate to us, through the spirit working in our hearts, According to, uh, according to your word. And so we just pray you do that even now. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, out of all the things as we look at Hebrews, uh, the whole uh, book together, uh, it has been uh, deeply encouraging to me. One, because we see that the writer has a relentless focus on Jesus Christ. I was thinking of the Greeks who came to the apostles. We would see Jesus, and the writer is not uh, missing the mark as he continually exposes us to the glory, the majesty, the understanding of who Jesus is and what a joy that is. He continues to strengthen our minds to the work in which he's done for us, and he sums up over and over to tell you and me Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Uh, he's a better priest. He's a better prophet. He's a better friend. He's a better advocate. He's a better high, uh, high priest, uh, and he is better. Along with the emphasis on Jesus, the writer al also brings us uh, to the world of the Old Testament. Over and over, we're brought back to the scenes of the Old Testament, as one writer has said that, uh, as you read through the book of Hebrews, you have to have uh, the Old Testament open along with you, or at least a good familiarity with the stories of the Old Testament uh, as he uh, continually brings us back to what God has done in the past. There's two things, I think, uh, or, or two dangers, I think, that are seen or problems this creates with us. One is that we are growing more and more or increasingly illiterate when it comes to our Bibles as a people, as a whole. Now, I know that may not be individually, but I don't think we have as much grasp on the Bible as, as generations before us. Uh, in the work of Sunday school and, and uh, uh, telling the stories of the Old Testament and those things like that, um, we have to be diligent, not only in hearing those things and learning those things ourselves, but communicating those stories to our children and our children's children. Uh, and uh, some, uh, sometimes we've leaned so heavily on Sunday school, we've missed the opportunity of that discipleship ourselves in our own families. And Sunday school is important to do that, uh, but uh, it is also needed in the family itself. But secondly, we have seen the Old Testament mistreated. Any of you uh, familiar with something like that? Uh, we have seen the Old Testament, the stories in, in, uh, from Genesis all the way up to Matthew uh, mishandled or, or misinterpreted and, and abuse coming out of these things, which uh, when you see a book like Hebrews and all the Old Testament, it kind of confuses us. And we wonder, what do we do with the law of God? What do we do with cyanide and all those things like that? Uh, it reminds me of a debate. Uh, it was 
pretty adamant on a, a year ago. But anyway, we won't get into that. Well, I just want to say one of the things we miss uh, is we miss God. God has revealed himself, not just in the New Testament, fully in the New Testament. We have to have the, the New Testament. But he revealed himself all through the Old Testament, the power, the majesty, the wonder, his miracles, his ability to save and deliver and, uh, and work and speak the world into existence. Uh, missing our Old Testament uh, in that way, uh, we miss God himself. Not only God, Christ's ministry and his work and the cross and all that he that he has done uh, when he lived this life makes sense when we understand our Bibles from beginning to end. And one of the joys of going through Hebrews is you have both of those realities. You have the, the, the beauty of focusing our eyes on Christ, which will be his theme in chapter number 12, but you also have the, the, the drawing out of those illustrations in the Old Testament to remind you of God's power, his faithfulness, his works. Uh, as they go together. We might begin with the writers uh, as we come to chapter number 11. Uh, he, he looks at the subject of what he's been dealing with, and that's the superiority of Christ. If I could sum it up this way, his premise is that because Christ is better, because he is faithful, because he is competent to save to the uttermost, and because the Father is a rewarder of those who seek him through Jesus, then believe in him, trust him, and keep on believing and keep on trusting in him. Now, some of us, are uh, we, we learn by pictures and examples. We like illustrations and, and, and maybe coloring books to some degree. And I know some of you grown people do that with the kids, right? And you blame it on just spending time with the kids, but you like to color. You like pictures. Well, what the writer does is he brings us down the corridor if you will, of the word of God. Uh, along the walls on both sides are scenes of God's power and his faithfulness, his activity in the Old Testament, pictures of God's grace and, and his might, but also pictures of the people of God, the saints of God, and how they believed and trusted and even fell in the Old Testament. It is here that, uh, that he brings us to answer the question, what does it look like to believe and trust God? Well, it looks like Abel. It looks like Noah, and it looks like Enoch. It looks like Abraham, as we've discussed him in earlier chapter number 11. It looks like Moses, who demonstrated for us um, profoundly the, the faith that he had in God as he come to understand who God is, who God, and what God has promised. It says in verse 27, or verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Faith sees the true value of things, you could say that. I think it was H.B. Charles in one of his sermons reminded us that the economy of the Bible is not the same economy of the world. Uh, the things that uh, last the most or the longest, are the things that are of most value. Here Moses looking at the, uh, at the riches of Egypt compared to the reproach of Christ and having Christ, and he considers Christ and that reproach greater. True riches are found in Jesus. 
But he goes on to take us by the work of the Holy Spirit, writing to us, further describing for us the faith of Moses as we look in verse number 28 through 31. And not just Moses, but the whole Exodus encounter. And like it might be odd for you to look at Moses as a man of faith, if we're honest, we don't think of him that way. We think of Moses as a man of law. We think of him as a man of, of a lot of other things, but not faith. And so when we look at Exodus, it's not really the, the one encounter that we go to in the Bible to say, here's God's people's faith on display. Uh, and yet, the writer says, no, even there we find faith at work progression of it and the people living out their faith they practicing trusting and believing God the first I want to look at this first in verse number 28 as the simplicity of faith notice what he says by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them now J.C. Rowlett's said to make hard things seem easy and intelligible is a height attained by very few speakers. I would say amen to that. He was addressing or, or speaking to preachers in the idea of preaching, but there is something in, in that that reminds us that we often, um, more than not, tend to complicate things. We don't simplify them. We make things more difficult, harder, and, and, and add more things to it rather than simplifying and yet here, I, I think we notice, uh, as I've labeled verse number 28, the simplicity of faith. Uh, you know the Passover, and notice that as you read your Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, that it was, a, it was an encounter with God. It was a provision given to the people of God from God's own lips, so to speak. God instructed them, gave them uh, the instructions in what to do of the Passover lamb, and it was the final plague that God put upon the nation of Egypt. Now what you see in the deliverance, the exodus of the children of Israel is God at war with Egypt. The Egyptians did not pick up a rock or a stone or a sword or a spear. They didn't have chariots. They didn't have any of those things. Yet they went out leaving Egypt having spoiled their neighbors. And it was all demonstrating the reality that God sovereignly, majestically, powerfully worked and delivered his people. They didn't lift a finger. Isn't that amazing? God fights for his people destroys his enemies. God alone, through the series of ten plagues, delivered his people uh, in an act of divine judgment on that nation. Now notice in our text, he says, in this encounter, in this last plague, that, that final act that God would use to bring the people out, the Bible says that Moses, by faith, kept the Passover, and it was by faith he sprinkled upon the doorpost uh, that would spare them and deliver them. Now, the idea of keeping the Passover was that he observed it. And I know he instituted it and all the other things that go along with that. But he's saying here, by faith, Moses observed. He, he celebrated. He kept the Passover. 
It was by faith that he, uh, he took the lamb and he set it apart. It was by faith that it was cooked with the herbs that God commanded it to be cooked with. It was by faith that Moses, dressed in his clothes with his staff in his hand, ate the lamb and was spared from the destroyer. Now, why does he point out faith in this? Because simply he did what God told him to do. God commanded him and gave him the instructions of what to do and how to do it, and he followed them. Moses didn't reinvent them. He didn't add to that. He didn't manufacture what he wanted or, or make it and adjust it to his own desires. I really don't like those herbs and seasonings. Maybe I like it better this way. He did exactly what God said to do. The simplicity that we find in verse number 28 is the fact that God gave them the detailed instructions and in giving them this, Moses obeyed it. Moses obeyed it. I often wonder how we ask God for wisdom and as he gives us wisdom, we ask for a second opinion. And yet here Moses shows us the simplicity of faith. God says, do it this way, Moses. He did it that way. It was by faith that he kept the Passover. He did simply what God prescribed, and that included not only keeping the Passover, celebrating the Passover, but sprinkling the blood on the doorposts so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And it's a very interesting thing that God commanded them. And what you find in the Bible is God knows how to distinguish between those who are his people and those who are not. He made a difference and a distinction between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt. That's most clearly seen in the plague of darkness that fell upon the land, the ninth plague that's found in the book of Exodus. The Bible says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, and that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. I love the bright skies at night here, but there's sometimes that it's just dark. And really early, too. Six o'clock, you feel like it's midnight. Three days of darkness that could be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they were. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, you can't even explain it from a natural phenomenon. It's, it's like an eclipse. It lasted three, maybe, but all the people over there had light. And showing that God made a distinction between those who were his people and those who were not. That he was able to save, even in the midst of plagues, even defeating their enemies, those who were his was spared. Those who were his was distinct. God could have did the same thing with the, with the plague of the the destroyer, the last one. But he did not make distinction by nationality. The destroyer did not come through. The angel of death did not come through looking at the door. Do they speak Hebrew? Do they speak, uh, or do they speak Egyptian? Whatever that is. Uh, are they part of the tribe of Abraham or are they not part of that? He didn't go to the wrong side of town where they knew bad people was hanging out. He said the distinction that would be made is that the door where the blood is applied, they would be spared death.
distinction was made by those who have been marked by the blood of the Lamb. And we don't need to go too far and make too long of a track to realize that death doesn't care what kind of person you are, how good, how bad, where you're from, where you're going. It takes men, it takes women, it takes children, it takes older men all the same. What safety we have is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the whole book's about. The destroyer for some, for many, uh, or the angel of death for many is a destroyer. But to the people of God where their sins have been forgiven, where the blood has been applied, there is no sting, there is no hold, there is no power. God saves. What a joy that is to know that. We, we, we taste and we see the shadow of it passing. A brother that we just mentioned prayed for him, his, uh, praying for his family, and yet it's just the shadow of death. We look for and long for and anticipate life. Not just life as it is right now, but true life, living in the presence of God, enjoying the fullness of who he is for all eternity. The distinction is made where the blood is applied. Now, why do they say it's by faith? Because when they put the blood upon the doorpost of the house, they did not see the immediate effect of it. It was in the night. It was beyond the moment that they applied the blood that the effect had taken place. And so it just reminds us now, even the simplicity of our faith brings us back to that joy of what God has said. We obey what God has instructed us. We we follow. But secondly, not only does he speak about simplicity in that regard. He tells us in verse number 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea and on dry land or crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same were drowned. Now, I know Elijah would tell us that uh, after every great victory, we find a great trouble <laughs> or trial. Uh, Mount Carmel experienced, and the next thing you know, Jezebel's chasing him, and so he's in deep depression wanting to die. We see God allowing our faith, not only the simplicity of our faith, but our faith being stretched through the things that we encounter. Here, the expression between a rock and a hard place was evident in the nation of Israel's life. He's bringing up this account where an army on one side and an ocean on the other side, they could not go left, they could not go right, they were stuck. I wouldn't ask you to show your hands, but how many of you feel that way in your life at this present moment? Troubles on one side, seemingly impossible situation on the other side, you don't know what to do, you don't know where to turn. Uh, and that's oftentimes where God's people find themselves. The psalmist, uh, he agrees with us as he cries out in Psalms 42, your waves has gone over me, verse number 7. And yet his faith acknowledges in verse number 8 of that psalm, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is ever with me. You see here God bringing the people to this great victory of crossing on dry ground and and God working this. But the writer says, and all of this is seen, faith. Faith, people and how they learned and how they stretched their belief in God and how God rewarded them. 
he displays his might in two ways in verse number 25 uh, in one way and that the people cross the Red Sea on dry land and I don't know some of you uh, out in the lakes and you get off the shore and you walk through there and the mud just kind of suctions your feet down because it's muddy that's the way it is and yet God worked so miraculously that when he parted the waters of the Red Sea, it was dry. A, a small child didn't get, they didn't get stuck in the mud. They walked across on dry land. The second way he showed his might in that passage is that when the Egyptians tried to do the same thing, they mired down in the muck and they were drowned in the sea. And both encounters... God displayed his might. How was faith seen in that? Well, it was seen in Moses as he directed the people towards God. Moses cries out and says that the Lord will deliver you. See the salvation of the Lord, reminding them that there is a God who will fight for them, will deliver them. And can I say this? That's that very thing you and I need in our life when we go through difficulties. We need people that they may not be the answer, but they can at least point you to the answer that's found in God. Point you to continue to trust and hope and rest in the reality of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ to, to lean upon our great advocate. We need people like that. And thank God for moments in your life when someone's come along and said, I know things are hard, but God is faithful. Christ is faithful. Reminds us not only do, do we need people like that, you and I need to be quick pointers to Christ. We're quick to point people to a lot of places, but we need to be quick to point people to the Christ, uh, to Christ our Savior. While we may be little in our power, we've been given a good word, we've been given a trustworthy promise, and we've been given a faithful Savior. And that's really what we're to do in the middle of our difficulties. Point people to Christ. Turn to Christ like Moses. But here he speaks not just of Moses, but he speaks of the people themselves. God's response to Moses and the dilemma in the book of Exodus is tell the people to go forward. You see, they exercised their faith by moving from the bank through the water. They walked on dry land. John Owen, speaking of this passage in verse number 29, he says, Faith will find a way through a sea of difficulties under the call of God. But we're turning towards God, and as God, as God works in our life, as he leads us along, we follow after. And that following after is evidence of our faith. Let me just say two things about this. We're taught in verse number 29. One is we're taught where to turn in the middle of your difficulties, in the middle of my difficulties. And secondly, we're taught and reminded of the reward of turning in the middle of our difficulties, in the middle of our troubles. It is here that he points out that they, by faith, crossed the Red Sea as on dry ground, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Verse number 30, he goes on further, not only describing faith as it's being stretched, he speaks of faith and the strength which it finds 
not in man's wisdom. You ever marveled at the statement in the New Testament where we read that God's ways are not our ways? How many of you ever found that to be true? You can raise your hand for this. We can all join in. You did that last week. It worked out pretty well. Over and over, we encounter places in the Word of God that we're like, really? This is your plan? <laughs> I think this is one of those encounters uh, that we see here in verse number 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. The account we point to is in Joshua chapter number 6. And several things had led up to this moment. To God's people, God had parted the Jordan River. The second generation has passed on dry ground. Uh, uh, manna had stopped and they began eating fruit from the land. The men were circumcised. They ate the Passover in the land. Joshua had seen the angel of the Lord. They were prepared to receive what God had promised them, the land of Canaan. They face their first encounter, the first battle which they will face. And, and let me just give you a description of the wall that I found in the city itself. The city was about 10 acres altogether. The center section of the city was about six acres, or, and it was called the inner or the upper city. The walls of uh, Jericho were double, uh, and in between the walls there was enough room for housing and people lived to kind of fortify further the walls um, and, and their um, safety which they would bring to the city. Naturally, because Rahab lived in a, one of the walls. The outer wall section, the ones that the nation of Israel that marched around, had a lower part, kind of a um, retaining wall, about 12 to 15 feet. Above that, or sitting on top of that retaining wall, was about 30 feet of stone. A large stone, two foot in, in, in size, very large stone. So roughly about 46 feet high. That's a big wall. And so as they face this, God is teaching the people that he does not need them to win the victory. But he lets them take part in it. So he commands them, he, he commissions them, he, in his instruction to them, I want you to walk around the wall once a day for six days. On the seventh day, I want, to walk, I want you to walk around seven times, blow the trumpets, and shout really, really loud. It's almost like if someone come up with that plan in a planning meeting, you'd be like, okay, the next guy, what do you got? <laughs> and the Bible says as they marched, they marched by faith demonstrating for us and God wanting to show them and show to us that their strength rested not in their own might. It did not rest in their ability. It did not rest in their, their giftedness or talent to wield a sword or a shield or whatever it might be. Their strength rested in God himself. God could deliver without the Israelites in Egypt and God can deliver with a ridiculous proposition of walk around a wall. Either way, at the end of the day, it would be God that gains the glory and they would be taught that the battle belongs to the Lord. Their strength rested in God. 
their faith was exercised as they march. I was thinking about this and someone had sent me a text, uh, an excerpt out of a book. I didn't uh, have the quote in front of me, but, uh, but it was something on prayer. And I thought, isn't that a lot like praying? Especially for us who like to do stuff. And yet God calls us to pray. Which seems to me, and many times in life, when things need to get done, when things are overwhelming, when there's difficulties that we face, praying seems a lot like marching around a wall. I don't want to take this farther than it ought to be took, but we we rest, we're taught that the strength is in God and His ability, and, and prayer is a confession of that because we're calling on Him to do what we can't do. I could put it in perspective. I worked for a gentleman uh, once. Uh, I loved him. He actually fixed my truck. Uh, he was an iron worker from way back, back before they uh, they used to do it in shorts and flip flops. I think you know there was just there was no OSHA or anything like that, uh, and just a really uh, fun guy to work with. Had a lot of great stories to tell. Couldn't read, and he was the foreman. And he hated standing still. He hated to see anybody on the ground at all. He actually said as you were walking on the ground to get something, did you fall? And you would be like, no, i got to go to the bathroom. Well, you just had a break 20 minutes ago. You should have went then. Get back up on the... I mean, he was just so relentlessly had to be busy. In fact, in so much, he couldn't read and he did a good job as long as there wasn't a lot of detail in the print. Naturally, you have to read the detailed notes. But he was under the mindset, we're going to do something even if it's wrong. Right? There's a lot of times we put stuff up. And after he's left, they brought another foreman. We've kind of readjusted a lot of stuff. And I think sometimes we approach prayer like that. Just let me do something. Let me be busy. Let me be active. Let me, even if it's wrong, I'd rather do that than then then use and exercise the means that God has given me to get the job done. One of the ways we demonstrate strength and weakness is in the way we seek the face of God, not just in the things that we can handle, but in everything. We're to pray without ceasing, aren't we? Demonstrating that we recognize, like Joshua and the children of Israel was to recognize that the power and the battle and the glory all belong to God. And I want to just encourage you, let us not scoff and make little of the weapons which God has given to us, spiritual weapons which you and I need to be busy exercising. I want to just put a plug in every Wednesday night we meet here and pray. We do a Bible study and we look at the word of God, but but we come to pray and lift up and seek and march around the walls and burdens in our lives and the lives of this church and and the lives of others that, that come across our way. Because we want to not only acknowledge, but glorify when God brings the walls down. But it's not just in prayer, is it? In our culture, maybe not necessarily with this church, but it's not that we're not susceptible to that. But in our culture, the gospel itself, that weapon which God has said, therein lies the power for salvation, seems to be one of those things which we put off to the side. 
the church is so fascinated with its relevancy and, and meeting the modern needs and all the other stuff that it lays aside the weapons God gives for, for the excitement and the entertainment and everything else that the world has to offer. And yet we're brought back to the reality that God gets the work done God's way with God's tools. I want to say this as we look at that and just by way of application and I think it's evident God's ways are always right. Do you believe that? That wall, marching around that wall, and you can almost imagine them six times on that seventh day. I don't know if a brick was falling or crumbling. I doubt it. I don't think it was. I don't even know what the guys were thinking. The Bible doesn't tell us. And yet God used that means. He used that way to bring down that city. God's ways are always right, even if they run counter to the world's ways and even our own ways. Amen? Well, I think one great example of that and how they run counter to our own ways is found in 2 Kings chapter number 5 and the story of Naaman. Some of you might recall the, uh, the man who had leprosy. He was not... Jewish and he comes to see the prophet of God and the prophet tells him wouldn't even come and speak to him actually and then tells him go dip seven times in Jordan and the man walks away angry I thought he was going to do something great and something big and, and slap the ground and, and dance around and lightning and thunder and all this other stuff and just dip in the river seven times but what Naaman found and what the children of Israel found is God's way though they may not be our way they're the most effective way. They work. The seventh time he comes up out of the water and the Bible says his skin was healed. The seventh time and the trumpet sounded and the men shouted and the walls fell. We find our strength in God and in God's ways, not in our own and not in ourselves. Well, thirdly, we or fourthly, we see this in Rahab. And I may, we may come visit this again next week. As we consider the people of God's faith on display in the Old Testament and how God worked through them, we're reminded over and over, God is faithful. Keep trusting, keep believing, keep resting in him, and keep amazed at what he can do. Well, bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning we can gather together. We thank you for your word and the good reminders of your work. How I feel like I need that, as I believe everyone here does. Lord, we know the difficulty in this world, especially when we live in a time where it seems that your work in such profound ways is so very limited, at least from our perception of things. And yet you bring us back and remind us that you have not changed. You are still faithful. You still deliver your people either from disaster in the midst of disaster or ultimately in your presence. You continue to work and honor and, and you are continued magnified by the faith of your people because it is a continual statement that you are faithful and trustworthy and never change. Thank you for the reminders as I look out in this 
uh, room this morning to all of the saints here, many of which have demonstrated their faith in you in countless ways. What an encouragement that is. Lord, that all of us may be spurred on a little bit, be reminded a little bit of your goodness. This is my desire, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.